Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Betwixt the aft and the forswain stands the pinting man, granite in his stance. Athwart ships in sou'wester, he stares abaft the beam, setting his glance to windward. He dreams of ropes tied fast on portside cleats, the fingerprint alleyways of home, the moon underwater. Robin, propping up the bar, rightly may I say, with all due prominence and regalia at the Moon Underwater Bar. Uh, how how do we find ourselves? Yes, good, John. Yeah, I'm actually propping up the bar, even though the counter has come up like in Del Boy. But uh, I've sort of, I've sort of floating to prevent falling through the bar. It's it's Del proof. It's Del proof. No one's fallen over in the Moon Underwater for I think sort of four and a half thousand years after an unpleasant incident with a couple of pharaohs. <laughs> yeah. But how's how's your pinting week? Yeah, the pinting week. Um, how's it how's it been? It's been good. I've nipped into the old Sylvan Post as per. Um, how how about you, John? How's your week been? Well, I, I, I believe, I believe, Robin, there was a rather big piece of news in your pinting week. There was some extraordinary news in my pinting week, apart from just going to the pub, was I had an incredible <laughs> delivery via the kind of earthly realm's mist mail, or the mail, as it's called. Yeah. Um, which was an exquisite present from Mr. John... M.D. Robbins himself. Present and guilty as charged. Yeah, it was a Phillips draft pull pour keg cooling. Pulled pork keg? I don't know how to describe it. You put a keg in it and you can pull a pint. It's a home draft system. It's a home draft system. It was ex- It's brilliant. Thank you so much. What's it like? How does it work? Talk about the pints. Well, I'll tell you what's great about it is the delayed gratification, which we all know is the perfect ingredient in a pint. Because you get the keg, and you get your draft cool system, and you have to put the keg in, 
And it takes up to and including 12 hours, 12 hours to get to the right temperature of three degrees C. Yeah. So that that waiting is just part of the fun of it. Is it a bit like a sort of a domestic version of us walking around the Oxford University parks before <laughs> going for our first drink at 5 Exactly. PM? You wouldn't want it to just work straight out of the box. No. You wouldn't want it to work straight out the door. So some people on on social media was saying the trick is to actually put the keg in the fridge for the first couple of hours. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. But I guess, you know, I, I, yeah, I sh- maybe I should have done that. But it was it was absolutely stunning. And how many pints do you get in a keg? Well, there's six litres. So... It's about ten pints. Uh, yeah, something somewhere in that region. It's all gone. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Because w- one thing that, because uh, so I got sent, Alex Horn very kindly sent me the Horn Section have done a beer called the Horn Session. Oh. And it's a sort of really nice 4.3% ABV. But because of the nature of those kegs, I got it and the best before date was that evening. Oh. And I had a, a, a sort of very, very unpleasant stomach virus. Ah. So... It was so so frustrating to be holding like eight pints in your hand, but know that you wouldn't. So, but I hear that does the home draft one keep for thirty days? Thirty days, and it has a countdown. Ah, oh, a pint down, more like. Yeah, it was really really stunning. I'm, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get into the habit. I think you can recycle your kegs. You send back the empty one and get a new one. So I'm gonna try some nice German pilsners. I think. Well, they've got quite a good selection, haven't they? Yeah, they have. Yeah, they've got Jaipur. And you've got your Stellas and things, but you've also got some really nice uh, uh, German pills. As I think, because I think it might be the same one that Al's from Al Kitchen uses. Yeah, it absolutely is. Who we should get on here? Actually, we should get. We should invite to the Moon Underwater. Yes, but thank you, John. That was that was a fantastic gift. You're absolutely welcome. It was a housewarming present for Robin's new flat. Mm. I'm afraid there have really been no. No pints in my week. In fact, the last time I drank was in the moon underwater. Uh, the last time we were in the moon underwater because I got a very nasty, not sure whether it was norovirus or some kind of food poisoning or just stress, but it absolutely, let's just say the pints were flowing from the wrong receptacle. Don't. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's what a nightmare. I mean, I really felt for you because myself and my girlfriend had the norovirus a couple of years ago. You had it on holiday, didn't you? Well, this is the thing. We went to Ireland because I always wanted to go to Dingle. Because if you like pubs, uh, Dingle is kind of pub centre. Every every place, every shop, every pub is a pub. Every pub is a pub within a pub. Um, but yeah, getting norovirus just as you hit dingle. I mean, it's fair to say we were dingling like crazy that week. <laughs> but also to get it, I was thinking as as awful as it is, and any like I, I know lots of kids get it because it goes around schools, so parents will be familiar with just how appalling it is. But to get it away from home. Or even out of your house. Yeah. So the fact I live alone and could basically just 
hole up for five or six days was was a, a, a bit of a sort of uh, silver lining. But do you know what was nice about that holiday, though, was we on the last night we stayed in Dublin and we were still a bit too ill to go out, but we just stayed in the hotel and watched Bridesmaids because it was on TV and um, just occasionally nipped down to the bar downstairs and brought a pint up. Oh, that's nice. And it was ge- genuinely one of the nicest evenings in living memory for me. It was brilliant. <laughs> I'm, I'm still not up to drinking i'm afraid so i'm on the uh, orange squash tonight sure sure so no no pint tales from me but robin uh, you talked about what the amazonian mist mail brought to you uh, this week but what did what what did the mist mail bring to the moon underwater well that's a great question john i sighed for the mist mail today and had a lovely message in here from ollie ollie says hey i just wanted to share some devastating news to my fellow pintsmen we're currently in the John Snow, Sam Smith pub, and have been informed that they are discontinuing the Alpine Lager, Man in the Box. What? Mm. Alas, we have it on good authority that there are a few barrels left in circulation. Now the quest is on. Rubbish! I said that was a nice email. It's actually quite sad, isn't it? I don't understand why... Because surely, actually... Surely, actually, Robin... Surely, actually, yeah. Man in a Box is sort of finding its market now that the sort of lower ABV beer is quite on trend. For those who don't know, Man in a Box is the Sam Smith's own brand 2.6% lager. Yeah, it's very weak and it's very cheap. And it's very tasty, actually, may I say. That's very sad to hear. I associate it with Saturday afternoons. It's a great pint to drink, maybe if you are sort of your workmates want to go out for a boozy lunch, but you don't really want a boozy lunch, or I employ it when my friends are meeting earlier than I would usually drink. Yeah, employ. <laughs> you're sort of three, half past threes, you're quarter past fours. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a crying shame, but thanks for letting us know, Ollie. I mean, maybe it's because of the cost. Like, I mean, I don't know, is it, you know, if it's cheap, maybe they're not making much money from it. Yeah, well, they're paying less tax on it, but Maybe, fingers crossed, they're actually just sort of replacing it with something similar. Yeah, and I hope we can, you know, maybe they've got a few men in boxes we could kind of take as souvenirs to go with your 2001 era Green King tap thing. Oh, I'd love a little man in a box. You would, wouldn't you? Um, This is another good message we had in the missed mail from Lewis. Uh, He says, hi, John and Robin. I hope I find you tipsy and full of warmth. I know you talk about pub literature, pub poetry, and songs to play in pubs, but what are the best songs about pubs themselves? My two favourites are Cornerstone by the Arctic Monkeys and Local Girl by the Rhythm Method. Both are melancholic melodies about losing a loved one amongst the fag smoke and fruit machines. I'd love to hear your favourites. Yours in pubs, Lewis. It's a great question. Great cue. And I think it's important to make a distinction because there are an awful lot of songs about drinking. Yeah. But there probably aren't that many songs about pubs. Actually, about pubs, yeah. I think this is something we could do in the Behind the Cellar Door, though. Oh, in the bonus podcast? Yes, we could kind of go through some of our favourite pub-related songs. We could, and we could play some clips of them and think of Time's Gone Yore. Time's Gone Yore. Mm. I mean, my immediate thought is As I Roved Out, but that's not about pubs, it's just because there's a video on YouTube of it being sung in a pub by The Voice Squad. Oh, God. I mean, I want to live in that pub. I'm sure we've discussed that before, haven't we, The Voice Squad? Absolutely stunning. 
the one that sprung to my mind when I read that was Seamus Fogarty. Oh, yes. It's got a fantastic... Well, his album, The Curious Hand, is brilliant, but the actual song itself, The Curious Hand, in one of the verses, it kind of finds him in Temple Bar uh, having a drink. It's a lovely line where he says, uh, I found a pub and took a drink. A nice kind of vernacular. And he says, um, as the rain began, the tap dance... Across the awning. Oh yes, please. That's that's a superb album. It's brilliant, and actually that song as well, because Seamus Fogarty uses a lot of field recordings, and in the song there's actually kind of field recordings of these old old guys kind of drinking in a pub. It sounds like, and so it kind of creates this superb atmosphere. It's, it's a, such a beautiful song. That fun fact, Seamus uh, Seamus Fogarty is uh, we we played him on Five Live one week and forgot to check for swear words and he says fuck in one of the songs <laughs> which we played out live on the radio <laughs> there's a song called The Parting Glass which I thought was about pubs but actually it's just an incredibly beautiful song about death mm. um, but there's a very uh, I think the voice squad it, that, that's sort of like a standard of those um, great Irish bands like uh, the Chieftains and the Dubliners but uh, Hosier does a version on the Late Late Show, which is quite moving. Mm, mm. See, from Wicklow. Oh, really? Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to have a think about that, won't we? Yeah, yeah, we will delve into our um, iTunes or for Robin streaming services uh, <laughs> to try and pick out our favourite songs about pubs and maybe go into that in a bit more detail in Behind the Cellar Door, which you can access by uh, contributing to the upkeep of the Moon Underwater, the pipes, the gleaming. The brasses, the polish for the many different wooden surfaces and hues um, at patreon.com forward slash moonunderpod. All of your help very much appreciated. And also live shows coming up, which we're very excited about uh, in August and September. Tickets still available at the George IV pub in Chiswick. Gan yourself down, pint yourself up, sit yourself down again and then listen to us and watch us chatting to someone in the moon underwater in the George the Fourth pub. pub. And get up when it's finished. Uh, anyway, Robin, so sorry, I've just... Is it is it 2004 or is it 2021? I mean, which way's your mind pointing? Well, that's the thing, because I'm suddenly... Sometimes here in the moon underwater, you know that feeling when you're writing out a cheque and you don't can't remember what year it is? You get that in the moon underwater where you suddenly don't know what sort of version of yourself you are. Exactly. I hate it when you wake up on a Thursday and you think it's a f- 2002, you know. Yeah. And I'm thinking that before our guest arrives, I need to get this sorted because it could be the time vein on the roof. Ah, shit. Because the time vein is a is a tr- is a sort of three-cornered vein that points to the future, the past, or the present, and I've got a feeling it's pointing towards the past. Yeah, and it is spelt vein, V-E-I-N, not V-A-N-E, because it is a vein to our hearts and minds. It is a vein to our hearts and minds, so it runs down through the vein, down through the roof, down through the various beams, both wooden and light, uh, and then it it runs throughout us, our (laughs) sen. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to check it's been calibrated because I don't want our guests turning up and thinking that they've travelled back in time or, or indeed into the future. I tell you what, I don't want to be up on that roof again. Why? What happened, John? 
well, it was just very strange. The air is different up there, but I got the uh, I got the time vein loosened, so it should be pointing towards the past now. Right. Everyone just knows where's the past, where's the present, where's the uh, the future. Yeah, and it's a good job too because time is of the essence. Mm. Point it towards the present. It's pointed towards the present because I think I can hear the trademark footsteps of this week's guest in the moon underwater. And there he is, a smile familiar to millions. And here he comes through the door. It is genuine broadcasting royalty, the godfather of modern radio. He gave you time checks. It's the one and only (laughs) Mr. Tony Blackburn. Thank you very much. What a wonderful introduction. And that is my only claim to fame. I did actually introduce the time check. You did. And so tell us what that is, because it's sort of a radio term, but it's something everyone will have heard on their radio. This week I've been broadcasting 57 years because I started on July the 25th, 1964 on Radio Caroline and I did the breakfast show and it was the first show I'd, I'd sort of done. And uh, I suddenly thought nobody ever gives time checks and people are listening in the morning and they want to see the time. Now, of course, it's on television. You've got the time. You've got everything. But I was the first person to introduce the time check. So in other words, a time check is, you know, it's 28 Pop a doodle minutes past seven or something like that, and so uh, and I used to do that, and a lot of people used to write in and say that's great because uh, you know we don't have to look, bother with watches anymore. So that, <laughs> that's my only claim to fame, to be honest with you. Yeah, I have to say, even though time checks are no longer really needed as a radio presenter myself, they're incredibly useful when you need to buy about sort of ten seconds just to think of what you're going to say next. Are you telling me that the time check is no longer of any use at all? I built my whole career on that, and now it's been bought down by you, John. Well, no, we do use it because obviously we have news every half an hour, so it's very helpful to say, it's coming up to one o'clock, we're just about to head over to the news, but before then, coming up on the show, etc. But I tell you what, when there's a little bit of dead air, or a guest has perhaps left the call a little bit sharper than you would have thought, it's very useful to be able to go, it's... One twenty-four, and it just gives you that little bit of breathing space. It certainly does. You're absolutely right. So it wasn't a career in vain after all. (laughs) So, Tony, for some of our listeners, it's important to say you haven't just been broadcasting for 57 years, but when you started broadcasting, you were really at the forefront of what we now take for granted as radio. Could you tell us sort of what existed before you started broadcasting on Radio Caroline and then Radio One? Well, it was just the BBC, actually. The, we had a thing called the Light Programme and the, it was called the Home Service. There was three quarters of an hour of pop music every day, uh, Monday to Friday, and that was all it was. And uh, you had bands, you know, you had the Northern Dance Orchestra and all that stuff. And there was no music programmes apart from Radio Luxembourg fading in and out in the evening. So... Uh, we went out there on the North Sea. When I say we, we, I went out there on the North Sea with people like Simon D and eventually Kenny Everett and people like that. And we were three and a half miles, it doesn't sound very grand, off the coast of Frinton on CNS6. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I spent three years looking at Frinton from three and a half miles off and uh, eventually ended up actually shipwrecked on the coast of Frinton as well, very late at night in a 10-4 scale, which, of course, at the time I was uh, 21 years old, and I thought it was great fun. It was terribly dangerous, actually. But um, So we, we went out three and a half miles because 
that was into territorial waters and we flew under the Panamanian flag. And uh, so nobody in this country could go aboard the ship because if if the government went aboard this ship flying the Panamanian flag, it was like uh, declaring war on Panama. So uh, we were quite safe. And then we had to go through customs and officially we were on the way to Holland. But we never, of course, got there. I mean, it's amazing. And um, it did actually alter the whole of broadcasting. I'm very proud of that. And then I went from Radio Carolina to a station called, which is still the best station I've ever worked, and I loved it, Big L Radio London. And it brought in what we have now in radio, the top 40 American format. I'm sure unless you're an anorak, you're going to sleep now. But it was the <laughs> rotation of hit records. And uh, I love that station, and I still do. You know, it was a wonderful station to be on. Was it strange to sort of... When you were broadcasting from the boat, mm. to know that you were actually bringing something to British culture that hadn't been there before, and yet you were three and a half miles out at mm. sea, so it wasn't <laughs> like you were in the centre of it all. No, but it was there was nothing else going on, and we were really there to break the BBC monopoly, which really needed you know breaking. The idea was to bring in commercial radio, land based, and eventually it did. It took a long time. Because the um, when they put a thing called the Marine Offences Bill through, which made it illegal to advertise on the pirate ships, the very first advert was for the Radio Times. So it staggered on for a little bit, but by that time, a lot of us had gone on land. We knew the game was really over now. And then, of course, I was uh, very glad to offer a job at the BBC, the very organisation we'd been trying to bring down. So, <laughs> and you were the, the first voice on Radio 1, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, amazing. Yeah. I mean, um, BBC had been listening and they were forced by the then Labour government to, they said, you know, it's time, old chaps, that you bought something to the kids of this nation. And, uh, you know, it's time you, you got with it a little bit and provided some pop music. They said, pop? What is that? Popular music. So we went there and uh, Radio 1, and they were very nice to us. You know, the BBC were great, you know, and I built, well, I didn't build it myself, but with Kenny Everett, we designed the very first self-operating studio because they hadn't got anything like that at the BBC. And they said, you know, what do you guys want? And we showed them, and um, and that was it. You know, we started on there, and for the first time we started, um, you know, a few DJs. We didn't, we ad-libbed, because up till then you had to have a script and everything. And so we, we were the first ones to uh, ad-lib on the BBC because they, they loved scripts. And I remember going for the first time, I, I, it was actually the light programme. I had three months on the old light programme. And um, the producer said, can I have a script? And I said, well, I don't have a script. I had lib. And he said, ooh. So he said, well, would you mind? And this is absolutely true. He said, would you mind coming in three quarters of an hour before the program, at least, because otherwise I have to cancel the tea and donuts. And that was my... <laughs> and so that was my introduction to the BBC, you know. So when you started at the BBC, you were then at the heart of things yeah. and... You were in London. DJs back then commanded extraordinary audiences for their shows. We're talking in excess of 20 million people, aren't we? So to someone imagining it, what was London like? And especially because I think now there's such a big separation between musicians and their audiences. Am I being optimistic to think that sort of Soho was just full of pubs where everyone was drinking with Led Zeppelin and David Bowie and all that? What, what was the scene like? 
Oh, it was wonderful. I mean, we had you know, Carnaby Street. And as you say, I mean, the 60s was, was a wonderful time to be bought up. I mean, we had everything. We had Carnaby Street, the fashion. We had all the, you know, you know, people like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and people like that. It was enormously, enormous fun. And of course, the opening of Radio One, which somebody said to me, is that it's not just the opening of a station for you, it's the start of, of a, a career, which it was, you know, to be the first voice on Radio One. So it was very, very exciting. And I mean, I did meet people like David Bowie, not in pubs, but at record receptions. Because I mean, the, the record people in those days, it wasn't governed by um, accountants, it was music people. And every day, I mean, there was a, one, a record reception. And you could very rarely find a Radio 1 producer sober in the afternoon. <laughs> I mean, everybody was kind of you can now, actually. <laughs> you can now. But they were always in pubs or going to, um, you know, these record receptions. And um, I was standing next to David Bowie, and he was saying, oh, I'm just waiting to see what number my record has gone in the charts at, you know, and, and things like that. It was a wonderful time. Robin has a, a Beatles podcast. Do you have any Beatles memories? Or, Robin, do you have any Beatles questions? Well, I suppose just, yeah, what was your experience of playing them at the time and... Did he ever get the chance to meet them, I suppose, would be the, the main quite broad question. I did meet them. The first time I saw the Beatles, it was before I started broadcasting. It was in uh, about 1960, 64 or 63, at the Winter Gardens in uh, Bournemouth. Right. And uh, which is now, that was the big venue at the time. It's now a multi-story car park, which is <laughs> so wrong on so many levels. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> but I saw the Beatles there and um, I was with a girlfriend of mine and uh, all the kids, you couldn't hear them. I mean, the no. screaming and everything that was going on. I don't think they were even plugged in. You know, I don't think they were plugged in. I, I mean, you could not hear them at all, but they were wonderful. Uh, you know, Paul McCartney waving his head around, you know, you love me, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a terrific. I mean, it was a terrific time. And then I did meet them uh, very very briefly to say hello I can't honestly say I was uh, you know friends of theirs or anything but I did meet them on several occasions and um, but that was what I remember about them more than anything else the concert I went to where I didn't really hear them nobody mm. could <laughs> was it exciting though when a new kind of Beatles single would come in did you kind of and you were playing it did you think oh this has moved things on a bit did you kind of have that experience with any particular songs Oh, yeah. I mean, um, Kenny Everett particularly was, uh, when I joined Big L Radio London in about, I think it's 1966 or thereabout, or the 65, Kenny was a big Beatles fan, as I was, you know, as well. And we would uh, get a little boat that came out from Harwich every day, and it would deliver the records that the record companies said that they didn't give us, which, of course, they did. <laughs> uh, and you'd always wait for a Beatles record. And I remember hearing, you know, things like She Loves You and and uh, Strawberry Fields Forever and things like that. And it was wonderful. And we were, you know, we always tried to get be the first to get them on the air. As soon as they came on board, you know, we'd get the record, shove it on the turntable and play it, even without listening to it, really, yeah. because we knew it was going to be great. So uh, <laughs> they, were, they were great times. Yeah. So we're going to start creating your dream watering hole. I'm guessing radio in the, the 60s and 70s was slightly more boozy affair than it is now. I love looking at the menus for old pub drinks from the past because so many things have just gone. There's things like sort of Watney's or Courage Light Ale, uh, those sorts of things. Do you remember what the sort of fashionable drinks to have were in pubs or bars in the 60s? Well, you see... It's very, very strange because, you know, I do, I like a glass of wine. I like, a, you know, something, something to drink now and then, but I'm not a great drinker. And uh, I was out on the North Sea for three years and we were only allowed two bottles of beer or lager a day. 
because being out on the North Sea, we were, um, uh, you know, it's dangerous if you dropped over the side or something like that. So I was brought up for three years on, uh, I mean, we did two weeks on the ship and a week off. So in the week off, I would go there. But I was so busy and I've seen people destroy their careers through drinking too much. And so I was boringly very, very good. You know, I was never offered a drug in the 60s. To your knowledge. <laughs> to my, no, really, nobody, yeah. nobody did. I think people yeah. were probably dropping down by, by my side, you know. Yeah. I don't know. But I, I, I was so busy uh, broadcasting, things like that, and I, and I didn't want to get involved in too much, uh, you know, drinking either. But I used to go to wine bars more than anything else. You know, wine bars were great. I used to go there because I prefer wine to beer. I'm an awful guest for you because I'm not really a pub goer. But when I was on Radio One and I was doing the breakfast show, and as you you said, we had an enormous audience. You know, I was broadcasting to 21, 22 million every day, and then I had Top of the Pop. So it was very difficult to go into a pub where people were drinking and, and getting a bit uh, sort of bronzed, and you go in there and somebody might pick on you. So I avoided them really like the plague and also fish and chip shops because you, you go in, you know, in any shop, I'd be immediately recognized because I had at the time, you know, Radio One show. I was on Radio Luxembourg. I had my own television show on ITV called Time for Blackburn and also Top of the Pop. So immediately I had this, you know, suddenly I was recognized by everybody. And it is difficult, you know, going in, going somewhere by yourself into a pub or with a friend because you'll always get some idiot who's drunk and wants to pick on you and be, you know. <laughs> Uh, and that was the problem. So I didn't really go into pubs very much in those days. I remember there's a Paul McCartney interview where he said, you know, they used to be recording quite late. So they'd often go to wine bars or, they, you know, they'd go to like clubs. And it was in a club like that that Paul McCartney saw like things like Hendrix for the first time and things like that. Was that your experience? Did you see many live bands in that kind of setting? Uh, kind of? I was in clubs myself. I was performing in clubs, doing a silly, yeah, a silly show that I was I was doing, and I was doing so much as well. I mean, it's strange to say, but uh, sometimes I would do three clubs in one night. You'd do a half an hour or an hour in one, then you'd go on to another one. I particularly remember Froome in Somerset. We went from one club to another <laughs> doing that, and I was doing all these things. And I remember saying to my manager Harold Davison. Uh, who handled Frank Sinatra and all the big names, and he was the biggest agent in the country. I said to him, Tom, I said, I think I might be doing too much, uh, Harold, because at one time I was going to clubs, and of course they're very late at night, and there was one week when I could physically only sleep for 17 hours, it was, you know, because I was getting up first thing in the morning for Radio yeah. 1 Breakfast Show, and he said to me, look, it won't always be there, this work. He said, do it while it's there. And so I said, fine. And then I did... Eventually, once, I, I only missed one club in my life and I blacked out. I was at home, Earl's Court actually, it was a little bedsit I had there at the time, and um, I blacked out and I woke up, it was going and um, somebody said, where are you, you should be at this club. And I'd, I'd actually blacked out, I'd done too much. So Harold said, I think, probably you're right, we ought to ease it off a little bit. But having said that, you know, he said to me, he said, you know, take everything you can because it won't always be there. And I've done that for the last 57 years. Now I'm actually <laughs> knackered. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't go to clubs very much. That, sorry, that was the answer to your question. No, not really. I did go to clubs, but not very many of them, no. <laughs>
let's create, for the first time ever on the Moon Underwater, your dream wine bar. And that is perfectly within the realms of the premise, or your dream gastropub, or your... Gastropub would be better, I think, if you don't mind, John. I know it's your programme and your podcast, but... <laughs> no, it's your desire, Tony. It's your dream. So let's begin with two draft items in Tony Blackburn's Fantasy Gastropub. Well, once again, I'm not very good on remembering things, so I've got, I bought with me a Budweiser. Does that cast or not? That is not on draft, is it? You can have that, yes. A Budweiser or a, a Peroni. Nice. Got that there. I haven't drunk these, by the way. Have <laughs> you just found them in the garage? I just found them, yeah. So that, or I quite like now and then a Guinness. Mm. Guinness, I don't mind a Guinness uh, at all. But, uh, you know, when I go into a pub or a gastro pub, somebody will say to me, what would you like? So I say, what have you got? And I, I normally, my wife was telling me, I go for the first thing they say. <laughs> so if they say, yeah. say Budweiser, yeah. say, oh, it's fine, lovely. Yeah, lovely, that's great. So I'm not a connoisseur. But that would be great. Budweiser or Peroni would be great. Is it Budweiser because it's like alphabetically, you know, the barman's the, the, the doing, <laughs> just reading them out in alphabetical order? So. Well, I normally say Budweiser, yeah, so I, I yeah. go for that, you know? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going for Budweiser and Peroni on draft. Yes, okay. Okay. And I'm guessing as a wine lover, you might have slightly more at stake for the two bottled items. No, I, you see, I'm not a connoisseur on this. We went... On one and a half, the QE2, the uh, cruise line. We went on there, being flashed now. And, uh, <laughs> we, and the wine people were coming up and giving us these, these wonderful wines and things like that. And to be absolutely honest with you, I thought, you know, that, you know, ridiculous amount of money. And I still prefer the old Pinot Grigio. Mm. There it is. The Pinot Grigio, I like very much indeed. So, and also there's... What brand is that, Tony? Uh, that bottle? What brand is that? It's Alta Italia. Is that right? Vignet, Tar- Tarantino. Sounds like a mafia boss, <laughs> but I don't know. Right? <laughs> it's 2020, so it's not exactly a vintage. Well, did you know, Tony, here's a fun fact, 90% of the wine created is made to be drunk within a year. Is it? And 99% of wine created is meant to be drunk within two years. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Well, it was worth being with you today for that bit of knowledge, John. <laughs> so, so I can go on drinking that wine for, for as long as I like. So what yeah. would be your second bottle? You've got a bottle of Pinot this Grigio one, there. This one here. This is a, uh, a Villa Maria yeah. from New Zealand, Sauvignon Blanc, Marlborough. Once again, 2020. I think we got this from Sainsbury's or somewhere like that. I, I was I was drinking a lot of that one during the Euros, in fact, because and it started in, in that in exact bottle, and I sort of it started to become a lucky charm as England were winning, and I realised I was drinking far too much white wine. <laughs> but I kept having to get a new bottle for each England game, and uh, yeah. sadly didn't have one for the final. So there we go. No, exactly. I, I like it because of the the V on it. Yeah. Ah, it's a good one. It's very dry. Very dry. I love it. Are you more of a white wine drinker than a red wine drinker? Yes, I am, actually. Yeah, I prefer the, uh, the white wine, although the, everybody says that the red wine is better for you. But it stains your teeth, I understand, as well. So I went off that immediately. Yeah, is that, That's right, is it? Yeah. Yes. It, well, it sort of stains your, your teeth and your lips. And if you drink an awful lot of it in one sitting, you get that sort of, sort of purple marks around your mouth, <laughs> the telltale signs of too much red wine. 
You say in your book, Poptastic... It's not a dreadful title, isn't it? It's a wonderful title, and it's a wonderful book. A bit too honest, actually, to be honest with that one. But there's a piece of advice you give in there that, as a radio presenter, is, has been very useful, but is also quite dangerous, because you say the secret to being a really energetic, good ad-libbing presenter is to stay out for one more drink or a little bit later than you intended to. Did I put that? And yes, you did. And you said it's something about a little bit of tiredness, maybe a slight touch of a hangover, gave you a little bit more energy, that sort of slight mania that you need early in the mornings. Yeah, you're right. And looking back, some of the best shows I've done have been not when you're sort of in a real state, but just when you've got that slight foggy mania to you. Can I just stress that this doesn't work with an office job in my experience? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I used to, you're absolutely right, uh, John, because uh, I used to do a Ibiza. I was asked to to go over and do a Ibiza. So I used to do the, when I was working for Capital Gold, I used to do the afternoon show, then I'd fly over to Ibiza and they'd greet me over there and I'd have, what's that drink, that energy drink? Oh, Red Bull. Red Bull, he'd give me Red Bull, and then I'd be on the stage at uh, about four in the morning, which is their main time, evidently, there, so I'd, I'd do my show. Then I'd go out for breakfast after that, and then fly back, and I'd be on the air again, you know, in the afternoon. And I was quite tired, but I did some of my best shows like that. I think you're quite right. I think sometimes when you are a little bit tired, you try a little bit harder, and uh, you don't care quite as much, which I don't know if that's a good thing or not. You say things you might think twice about saying if you were not as tired. But I think it's, it's probably not the best advice to give anybody, but it's worked, for, it's worked for me so far. After all this time, after so many years, people say that I get away with one or two more things that one or, they might not get away with. I don't know, but I'm not that controversial, I don't think. When you go to a gastro pub, what are you looking for when you walk in what do you look and see and think, oh, this is this is where I want to be for this meal or this glass of wine or whatever? Preferably fairly empty. Yes. Uh, I like somewhere that's quite it's quiet and empty. My wife and I, we go to a lovely uh, gastro pub called The Gate in Arkley. And uh, we go there for lunch normally around about 3 o'clock, 3.15 in the afternoon. And there's very few people there. And it's not because I'm antisocial or anything, but it's just quite nice. And I, I also have loved recently social distancing mm. <laughs> i think that's wonderful you know guys who uh, and i hope they keep going at that i don't think they will but having a table that's away from other people listening to your conversation i think is wonderful so i do like places that don't play loud music i hate it when you hear you're struggling with music behind you it's funny being a disc jockey saying that but you know when you're struggling to be heard i think that's awful you know i like just a little bit of music in the background and, and that's it. And that's enough for me. But I, I do like a place that's not very full. And do you like quite modern places or do you prefer a more country feel to them? I like gastro pubs with a character to them. Yeah, I, I don't like modern, terribly modern places. There's a lovely place that we found in a place called Didisham in Devon because during this uh, pandemic, it's been, I mean, we haven't gone away. We're very careful. And we have had three or four days in Devon and Cornwall, places I love. And we found a wonderful place in Devon called Didisham. And there's a, a great pub there called the Ferry Boat Inn, which is perfect. It's a beautiful scenery. It's overlooking the sea. 
there's one section where the locals are sitting there and enjoying their pints of beer and things, and then you can go into a section which are obviously serving meals. And there's a lovely window, which we're lucky to get, and you overlook the sea, and it's just beautiful. The, the people there are always very friendly as well. You know, come up to you and say hello, and that is lovely. So I do love a pub with a bit of character to it. Oh, Tony, I'm looking at photos of the ferry boat in. Oh, you've got it, have you? Isn't it lovely? It's absolutely gorgeous. It's the only pub in the village. <laughs> is it? It's the only pub in the village, yeah. There's no other pub there, but it's beautiful. I tell you what, it's got a very unpretentious vibe to it. Yeah. It's not shabby, but it's it just looks really homely, and it looks a bit, because it's got these views of the sea, it looks a bit like you would expect a sort of top deck of a ship to be if it was turned into a pub. It is. I spent three years looking through a porthole out in the North Sea, and this is the closest thing to it. So you found your perfect pub, yeah. Yeah, it is lovely. And the, the landlord there is great, and uh, we, might, we only went there uh, once because we were only there for a very short time, but we're certainly going to go back there again because it is beautiful, and the people are nice. Uh, outside that window, there are people sitting there with drinks, looking at the sea. But I, you know, I was brought up in, uh, in, in Poole in Dorset, very close to Sandbanks, and I just love, always love the sea. And so for me, a pub like that, that, that is the perfect pub, gastro pub, actually. I haven't found one better than that. Obviously, you grew up next to the sea. You spent an awful lot of your early career on boats. Do you sail? No, I used to love water skiing. I was quite good at water skiing. Jet skiing, I love jet skiing, which really annoys sailors. Uh, my, my, <laughs> uh, my daughter, she loves paddle boarding with a boyfriend. They love the paddle boarding, but for me, it's too slow. And I like something that's got a bit of an engine to it and you can whiz around. I used to love jet skiing. I, was, I broke down on a couple of occasions in Pool Harbor. And I remember on one occasion... I Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I was sitting on a jet ski, and I, I'm talking about the proper jet skis that, I don't know if you remember them, where you stand up on them, not the, the little boats. But I remember it broke down in the middle of Pool Harbour, 
and which is quite dangerous because there are a lot of boats going around there. And I was sitting on this boat and waving to people, trying to get their attention, and, and they all waved back. I said, hello, Tony. <laughs> and then, Not waving, but stranded on a jet ski. <laughs> yeah. And then I was rescued by the, uh, the local people. They came out and, and rescued me, but it was quite funny. And then I was, um, I was stranded on Brownsy Island for a time as well. And got somebody to tow me back, but uh, generally speaking, I love jet skiing, but not sa- I love sailing. I do like the sailing thing, but I've never actually done it. Would your fantasy gastropub have a nautical theme or a seaside theme? Do you think? Um, I think a, um, a seaside theme. I, I mean, at the same time, there are some lovely little country pubs as well that uh, you know you look out on the on the countryside, and that's beautiful as well. But I, I do like the uh, the old fashioned gastropub or, or pub as they used to be. I mean, they all serve food now. Which is which is lovely, but I love those sort of pubs with character and the locals there. And you quite often see. I always find it funny if you go in as we do at three in the afternoon. You see the the locals. There are normally about four or five old boys sitting there with a pint of beer, and they've probably been there for hours and hours. And the landlord's yeah. saying, "Oh, for God's sake!" You know, they go in there <laughs> and they just order one pint, and then they go home when the landlord possibly wants the space. I don't know, but it's always great to see that. Well, we take a quick break from Tony's dream pub now to hand over to the lovely Robin Allender who has prepared this week's Moon Underwater Pub Quiz. Okay, everybody, pens out, eyes down. It's time for the quiz. He played for Zimbabwe, but he was born in South Africa. I know Alaska is bigger, that wasn't the question. Put your phone away. Right, Michael Jackson's Funky Monkey have been deducted five points. Thank you, John. Yes, so welcome to this week's pub quiz at the Moon Underwater. There are no prizes except the fun of taking part. So the format, I will read out three questions then. We'll go to a break to give you a chance to ruminate, and then we'll go through the answers and we can see how you did. How do you feel about pub quizzes, Tony? Do you like a pub quiz? Uh, I, you know, I've never taken part in one. I've, I've, I've really? Been, no, I've actually been there <laughs> in charge of a pub quiz, in other words, reading out the questions, but I'm useless at quizzes. Really? Yeah, oh yeah. For a long time, I was a standby for the chase. You know, the Bradley Walsh for the chase. I was dreading it. Your music knowledge must be pretty... No, I, I can't remember anything. My, I, I really can't remember anything, no. John Paul, George and Ringo, I know <laughs> that. But, and, you know, Mick Jagger and things. But if you ask me any questions about I'm useless, yeah. It's quite reassuring to, to hear Paul McCartney say... He cut his memory's terrible. He sort he sort of said, "I know Sergeant Pepper was sixty seven, but apart from that, I can't remember." <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay, so this pub quiz is three questions about the origins of well known phrases. Okay, so question one is: What is the origin of the term "back to square one"? What is the origin of the term "back to square one"? Get your thinking gear around that. Question two. In the early 1950s, young rock and rollers wearing brothel creepers, tapered trousers and long jackets were called teddy boys. But why? So why were they called teddy boys, those rock and rollers? Question three. What is the origin of the phrase dog days, as in the hot and sultry days of summer, a bit like we've got now? So what is the origin of the phrase dog days, the hot and sultry days of summer? So those are the three questions. Super questions, Robin. And with each question, I could 
just feel our listeners being raised higher and higher on those tenterhooks. <laughs> so we will leave you on those tenterhooks for just one second longer as we have some incidental music or an advert. Who knows? We have no control over where the adverts go. If you would like to hear this podcast without adverts and also get pre-release access to live tickets for the live shows we're doing, which are now on general sale, by the way, and also many other Moon Underwater benefits, including membership of the Moon Underwater Facebook group and the bonus podcast behind the cellar door, then head over to patreon.com forward slash moonunderpod. Welcome back, everyone. Sorry for keeping you on those tenterhooks for quite so long. Uh, Robin, can you let everyone down? I, I mean, from the tenterhooks, not not letting them down. <laughs> I've been letting people down, <laughs> letting people down my whole life, John. So can I just say that I would like to say that I knew the answer to every single one of those quiz questions. <gasps> nice, 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 nice. I thought you would because I'd like to say it, but I didn't know the answer to any of them. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's surprising. So I, I thought some of them might be in your wheelhouse, as it were. So No, not at all. No, not at all. No. What, what is the origin of the term back to square one? So no idea from Tony then? None at all. No. John? I have been told this. I think I've heard this on a podcast, but I have forgotten it. So I would like to be told now, please. Well, it is a radio one. It's something to do with radio. So when football used to be on the radio... Oh, I know it! I know yeah. It. <laughs> you would have a kind of pitch divided up at home with numbers on it. So one commentator would, would, would commentate on the action and another commentator might commentate on the square where the ball was at that time. And if the ball went back to the goalie, that's was square one. So you'd say, now it's back to square one. Amazing. So there we go. Yes, so that's why we say back to square one. Apparently. So Teddy Boys, why are they called Teddy Boys? Any ideas on that? Do you remember Teddy Boys, Tony? I remember Teddy Boys, yes. And uh, mod, uh, mods and rockers, but Teddy Boys. And uh, yeah, I mean, they, they looked very odd. Mm. Uh, but, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why, yeah. why they're called Teddy Boys. I remember the brothel creepers, yeah, as you yeah, said. Yeah. Those, yeah, they were great. Is an item of their clothing called an Edward something? So did they wear like Edward jackets or something? You're kind of veering towards the right direction. Shall I reveal it? Yeah. So it was inspired by the dandies of the Edwardian period. It's very fashionable to wear those kind of long jackets they kind of adopted in the 50s. So Teddy was a shortening of Edwardian. Very good. Edwardian boys. Yeah, there we go. Uh, this one is the tricky one. They've all been quite tricky to be fair. <laughs> what was the origin of the phrase dog days? The hot, sultry days of summer. I've got nothing on that. Any ideas? No. Dog days afternoon or Dog days like afternoon. After that's no. a good film, isn't it? Uh, the, yeah, very um, good film, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, historically the period following the rising of the star system Sirius, known colloquially as the Dog Star. Oh, really? So named because it's part of the constellation Canis Major, Latin for the greater dog. Very good. Yeah, dog days. That's why we say dog days. So there we go. We're laughing and learning. Fantastic uh, pub <laughs> quiz there. And Tony, a delight to have hosted Tony Blackburn's first ever pub quiz. Yes! Well, I did very badly. Well, so did I, Tony. That's why I read out the questions, you know, if I'm, if I'm asked to do them. That's the easy part. Yeah. Okay, now, Tony, you've expressed a preference for wine over beer, but where do you stand on spirits? Are you a spirit drinker? Uh, well, I quite like this, vodka. Oh, yes. Oh, Smirnoff <laughs> vodka this is here. I was Lovely. introduced to this very recently, actually, by my daughter. We went to a Russian... Uh, restaurant in Soho 
for my birthday, and she plied me with a lot of these uh, these these drinks. And uh, it didn't. They didn't seem to have much effect on me. But when I came back, I understand that I did quite a good Russian dance at home. So uh, that's. <laughs> so I quite like it. I mean, it, I don't think it can do you much good. Although I read on the internet, it's quite good for you, and I can't believe that. I can't believe it's any good for you. So what were you having? Were you just having it straight on your birthday? Yeah, just straight. Well, no, I'd had some wine before it. That probably helped. But um, I, I had some. Yeah, I had about. Uh, Two straight goes at the Smirnoff, yeah, without, without anything in it. And then uh, my daughter said, why don't I have another one, Dad? So I did and said, <laughs> uh, why don't I have another one? And I did. And so I went on like that, and it was quite, quite nice. So, I've, I've, so I do quite like that. Occasionally I have a little bit of vodka, yeah. That's about it, really. It's quite nice straight from the freezer, isn't it? Then? Yeah, it is. Because it doesn't freeze. So if it, when it's very cold, you can kind of drink it more. Yeah. You can feel it going down there, can't you? And when I, I went to Iceland many years ago, and they have a... Oh, it's a lovely place, isn't it? Just incredible place. They have a sort of a national spirit, which is very, very strong. It's about 60-odd percent. And we bought a bottle just because, you know, it was a bit of a keepsake from the holiday. And I tried it, and it was, as I had imagined, just tasted like petrol. However, when you put it in the freezer the taste completely changed. It was so much smoother. Yeah, the texture changes, the way it pours. It looks kind of quite syrupy. Viscous and, and syrupy. Mm. Do, you, do you know what reminds me of Iceland? What? Salted peanuts. Really? <laughs> really? And, yeah. And the reason for that is I was staying in a hotel. I was with Keith Chegwin, actually. We were doing some filming for GMTV or, or whatever it was in the morning show. And um, I ordered some salted peanuts, a very small little bag, and it was seven quid. Oh, my God. Wow. Seven pounds for salted peanuts. Yeah. So I always think of Iceland whenever I have salted <laughs> peanuts. I was there during a time The when... Second World War, you're about to say. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a very, very crucial period for me. No, um, during one of the periods of the year when it does, you know, there's no night. It's just a daylight. It was quite amazing. And we were sort of trying to take photos. You can't... I mean, it just looks like a photo taken in the day. It's a really pointless photo. But <laughs> wonderful place, isn't yeah. it? A wonderful place. Yeah, I loved it. So Smirnoff Vodka... Because one of your choices. What's going to be your second spirit or liqueur, Tony? Um, oh my goodness me! The only the only other thing I drink um, whiskey, whiskey. Is that is that okay? Whiskey? Yeah, yeah. It, is it a sort of a Scottish whiskey or an Irish or a peaty whiskey or? Doesn't matter really. It's just whiskey. Uh, I remember doing a Radio One Roadshow in Scotland with a lovely lady called Doreen Davis, who was the executive producer at the time, and uh, we stayed up till very late in the evening. And I Emily had had twenty eight double whiskies. And I got up uh, the following day and did one of the best Radio 1 shows that I've ever done, I think. <laughs> but, it's, uh, but I quite like whiskey. It's, uh, whiskey and Coke. Oh, whiskey lovely. Whiskey and Coke I quite like. Yeah, quite like that. We'll sort you out with a, a whiskey and Coke mm. in this uh, yeah. dream bar. Before we head to the pub library, I wanted to ask you one thing, which I think is sort of quite different from your early days to now, mm. is that now it's quite rare for people to straddle both radio and TV. Yeah. You know, it's almost like TV ignores people who have, I mean, I'm not necessarily speaking from personal experience, <laughs> uh, but back, back when you started, you were presenting TV shows, you had your own TV show, you're also on the breakfast show. What do you think changed? Do you think TV lost interest in people who are good at radio? Because obviously, someone who's a good radio presenter is a good improviser. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, very few people are good on television and radio. I, I was always preferred radio. Noel Edmonds was good on both. You know, he preferred television because he realised there was more money in television, so he uh, he went to that, to be honest with you. <laughs> yes, I don't know. Uh, nowadays, it's reversed a bit because quite often now you've got television people who don't really know how, what they're doing actually on radio. It's a shame. I think it's a shame. You know, if you're on say, Strictly Come Dancing on one of these shows, you immediately get there because you're, a, inverted commas, a celebrity. And I don't think a lot of radio people who who run these radio stations realise that television isn't as important as it used to be because there aren't the big audiences anymore. You know, if you go on television and get three or four million, you're doing really well. Whereas in the old days, like, I remember doing Noel's House Party and we had 18 million and it went down to 17 million and they started panicking. But I think most people... I know what you mean. I think they um, they don't necessarily take radio people. I don't know why that is. And they don't take people who are like me old now either. They, it's, uh, it's quite an ageist country, this one as well, I think. I've found it. So when I say a country, I, I think in broadcasting, ageism has crept in a little bit to it, you know. And everybody's chasing a young audience that actually I don't think is really there because they're all on Spotify and a lot of them don't. They, they hopefully eventually come to radio. But that's my view at any rate. But I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. As a big uh, kind of pop fan, like, mm. and you've kind of been a big defender of disco, which is great. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Do you still kind of listen to stuff, contemporary mm. music and contemporary pop music and keep keep your finger on the pulse and things like that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, I think it's very important. I think there are two things that are important. I think uh, to keep up to date with technology, I think is very important. I've always loved technology. I had one of the first sat-navs in the country, and I, I loved it, and used to go beyond Camberley, and then it suddenly went blank because they hadn't mapped it all out. And <laughs> very, very local sat now. <laughs> yeah, and I, I had one of the first satellite dishes. It was a, um, oh, a massive great dish uh, when I lived in Kensington, and it rotated. It was a rotating dish and um, in, the, in the old days. And I remember I was reported to the authorities for this dish because they thought I was a spy. <laughs> Nobody seen anything like it before. At the height of the Cold War, Blackbird gets taken. With your bottle of Smirnoff Russian vodka. Yeah. <laughs> doing your Russian dance. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Mm. Now it is time to expand our minds by heading over to the pub library where Robin will introduce a publy tome. Thanks, John. So this week I've got A.A. Gill's Poor Me, P-O-U-R, Poor Me. And it's his kind of memoir he wrote. And, you know, he doesn't pull any punches. It's a pretty kind of shocking account of alcoholism. And I don't, really don't want to kind of, I'm not trying to glorify it that or kind of take anything away from that but he, he writes so incredibly well about addiction I think and he writes incredibly well about alcohol and everything you, you've read this haven't you John yeah it's a it's an absolutely superb book he's a a journalist whom I, th- I think perhaps sometimes was trying to be controversial but when he's just being honest about his life yeah yeah so I don't agree with some of the things he he's written in his columns but to read his prose is you are reading of one of the great writers yes yeah, so I think so yeah are you familiar with AA a. Gill Tony um no not really I'm, I'm not a great right. <laughs> I'm not a great book reader actually which is a bit of a shame but I wait till it comes out as a film yeah sure 
but no, I'm not. I I should have read books more, but I'm, I just don't have the patience for it, and that's why my vocabulary isn't as good as it could be. I think really. <laughs> Like you say, you're working so hard. You're broadcasting every hour that God sends. It's very hard to present a radio show whilst reading a book. <laughs> it's practically impossible. Yes, you're absolutely right, John. I've never tried it, but I'm sure you're right. Nice to see you with a beer in your hand. Is that right? I've finally cracked. I've got a can of Gloucester Gold because the air's a bit cooler now. It's been very hot today and about time to uh, just relax. It's not just to try and, after all the uh, things I've been saying, to keep you awake, is it, by any <laughs> no, chance? No, this has been an absolute <laughs> joy. Are you, are you going to crack open a Budweiser there, Tony? Or are you? Um, I think this one will actually, yes. I think it might be a twist cap. Yes, it is. Yeah. Ooh. Cheers. Cheers. Well, cheers to you, Tony. I mean, I mean I've got carling because I got some as a joke because <laughs> we were doing this beer tasting yesterday and I, carling has a bad reputation. So I thought I'd try and try it out, see how, how it is. It's actually fine. <laughs> right. A.A. Gill. So this is like a really interesting passage from poor me because he's, he's talking about when he lived in New York and he talks about this thing which says, no one ever asks you what the best moment of your addiction was which is kind of quite a strange way of thinking about it, I think. But he, he said, this is what he has to say. No one has ever said what was the finest drink you ever had, but there must have been one, a high point, an optimum inebriation, a time when it was all golden, when the drink and the pleasure made sense and were brilliant. There was that moment, it lasted for six months. When I look back, it was everything I wanted my affair with addiction to be. 1980, New York. I'm 26. I'm in love with Amelia and in love with being in love in this city. I've been doing odd jobs, painting and decorating, being a janitor in a school up in Harlem. And in the evening, I drink in the Dublin house, the Irish again, on the Upper West Side, a bar that had once been a speakeasy. It was everything I wanted from a pub. Dark, old photos, red leather, cigarette smoke, purposeful, utilitarian, fit for its calling, a room to drink in, a long room filled with generations of solitary thoughts. There was an old jukebox and I'd sit at one end of the bar and drink glasses of dark becks with wild turkey chasers and smoke Lucky Strike, a combination that has never been bettered in all drunkenness. I'd read the New York Times and the Post and the New York Review of Books. The barman, a third generation Irish New Yorker who still nursed a discernible Dublin Northside brogue, was friendly but taciturn. I'd wait for Amelia to finish work as a waitress at Gleason's on the Park. She'd come in at about 12 and we'd go downtown to CBGB's or the Mud Club. I was sitting at the bar here and I heard John Lennon had been shot around the corner in the Dakota and they played Old Lang Syne on the jukebox all night. And the barman fed me whiskey on the house by way of apology and sympathy for a fellow deceased Brit. That was probably the best, just there that time and John Lennon dead. Incredible piece of prose. Quite evocative passage isn't it about this period in time and again it's obviously he had a pretty difficult time of it a.a. <laughs> kill but the way he's able to write about that kind of almost moment of clarity in the midst of it is quite amazing I think he gave up alcohol didn't he completely mm, yeah that's before he became a writer yeah yeah I think it's a really brave thing to actually talk about not just because everyone reads a memoir about alcohol wanting the sort of rock bottom mm. But to actually take a bit of time to explain, you know, there's a reason why I drank so much. You know, if it was all awful from start to finish, people wouldn't do it. So 
A worthy addition to the pub library, I would heartily recommend Poor Me by A.A. Gill. So thank you very much, Robin. But we don't just have a library here in the Moon Underwater, we also have a jukebox, and we ask every single guest of ours to add their perfect pub album to the Moon Underwater jukebox. And Tony, I cannot wait to hear what you have picked. Someone who has probably heard more songs than anyone in the history of mankind. (laughs) <laughs> that's probably that's probably true, isn't it? Yeah, possibly, yes. I've played a lot of them. My choice would be the uh, most wonderful album uh, from Marvin Gaye called What's Going On. Uh, it's it's a, a superb album, and uh, I love it. There's a track on it called Save the Children, which is I got released actually as a single, and it's a very in-depth in uh, sort of song, and I got it released as a single, and I was stopped from playing it on Radio One because they said it was too miserable. Really? But it was. It got in the shot. Yes. Yeah. And it's the most beautiful song. And Marvin Gaye was one of the very few Motown acts I never met. And he's one of my favourite singers. I mean, I toured with Dinah Ross and the Supremes, and I got that song. I'm still waiting. Released as a single. I found that on an album. But the Marvin Gaye uh, "What's Going On" album is just wonderful. I just love it, and um, that's my favourite album of all time. Is it really? So, when you say you got it released as a single, is this this an example of the kind of power and influence that DJs had in the sixties and seventies? Talk us through that process of of getting a single released. Well, I don't know. I don't think many DJs actually bothered about getting singles released. But in the early days of Radio 1, you know, and um, telling jokes and being quite frivolous of things, I don't think people realised how much I loved music. And uh, I do love music. I think nowadays, now that I've got older and I programme all the stuff that I do and know a bit about it, I think people appreciate it's not just talking nonsense. It is actually presenting some really lovely music as well. So when I heard particularly Diana Ross, I'd I'd been... um, uh, divorce for about 17 years, and it's the most beautiful song. I'm still waiting, Diana Ross. So I rung up Motown and said, there's a, a track on a Diana Ross album that you really should release as a single. And they said, what's that? And I said, I'm still waiting. So they rung Diana Ross up in America and uh, said this, and, he, and she evidently said, well, if he thinks it's going to be a hit record, why not release it? And uh, they did, and it made her a fortune. And I, <laughs> Did she and, send uh, you a bottle of champagne? She didn't send me anything. No, not at all. No. <laughs> not at all. Um, Cliff Richard, actually, I, when it was uncool to play Cliff Richard records, I made a stand when I was on Classic Gold, and it got in the papers. It was ridiculous. I played a Cliff Richard record on The Breakfast Show and said, I don't know why anybody's not playing Cliff Richard records. He's had hundreds of hits. So I played that. Then I got a message from the program controller saying, don't do that again. So the following day, I played two Cliff Richard records. (laughs) And I got another... Uh, thing. And then the following day after that, I played three Cliff Richard records and uh, got <laughs> and got suspended and it got into the press. And I was on the Radio 4 Today program and Cliff Richard heard about this and he sent me a little message saying thank you very much. And he sent me a half a bottle of champagne. A half bottle. I hate to inform you, Tony, but the power of the DJ has waned because I interviewed a hero of mine, Brian May, a couple of months ago, and he let slip that they'd found a very, very early recording of Queen. And this was pre-John Deacon joinings. This would have been very early 1970. And I pleaded with him to release it. And unfortunately, they've decided to keep it back 
so I was unable to exert any kind of broadcast influence on Brian May. <laughs> we had a talking about Brian May, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a lot, you know, they're big hit, isn't it? And my wife is very friendly with, uh, very friendly with his wife. And uh, we were out at some function and I was sitting down and sometimes I say what I think without thinking about it. And uh, I said to Brian May, I said, uh, that song of yours, Bohemian Rhapsody, I've never actually heard it all the way through. He said, why not? I said, well, I, I put that one on if I want to go to the loo. Oh, it Tony. goes on forever. <laughs> and my wife kicked me under the table. And I actually meant it. It's not one of my favourite records. I'm not a great Queen fan, to be honest with you, but uh, that's... But Ke- Kenny Everett was absolutely pivotal in getting that song released as a single because they gave him a white label copy and he played it seven times in one show seven times mm. it's yeah. about five minutes long that record isn't it it's yeah it's it's uh, six minutes long so kenny spent about 35 minutes of his show playing bohemian rhapsody and he kept teasing the <laughs> listeners by sort of playing a little section going oh I'm, i shouldn't be doing this i'm not allowed to play you this record and and then it became a bizarre. I'm sure, he didn't have kind of toilet problems with that. Was the... Oh, maybe that's why he was playing it seven times. <laughs> right, right. No, no. <laughs> when you mentioned Kenny Everett, who yeah. was a, a terrific disc jockey, and I had the pleasure of being out with him on the ships for a year on Radio London, and we read in the press, in the New Musical Express, that neither of us liked one another, and which wasn't true. And Kenny took this to heart, you know, because Kenny obviously living a slightly different lifestyle to my own. You know, he was uh, he was in the clubs the whole time. And he thought I had a thing against him, which I didn't. And we had the same agent. And this went on for about, it must have been about 10 or 15 years. And we went to our agent, Joe Gannett. We went to her 60th birthday party. And my wife was there. And Kenny loved my wife, uh, Debbie, very much. He, he just... He, he, he met her for the first time there and just liked her a lot. And he was sitting next to me with a white suit on at this 60th birthday party. And he had this, this glass of red wine. And by mistake, he flipped it over and all this red wine went over to him. And I was sitting next to him and he looked at me and he said, you did that on purpose, didn't you? You did that on purpose. You've never liked me. You've always hated me. And I said, uh, that's not true. And my wife uh, was sitting the other side of the story. It said, Kenny, he didn't. It was you. Oh, well, Debbie, if you say it, sorry, that's all right. <laughs> and, he, and he said to me, he said, you never liked me, have you, Tony? I said, of course I have, Kenny. Of course I have. He said, really? I said, yes. And uh, he gave me a kiss on the cheek. And from that moment, we're the greatest friends. Oh, that's so nice. And we went out to dinner with him about three weeks before he passed away. And we had a most lovely evening in an Italian restaurant. And, um, you know, he was, he was a great guy. I, I was on before him in the studio at Capital Gold, and he would come in with a feather duster and, and, and polish the studio down. <laughs> and uh, and he, we, he lived very close to us in Kensington, and he said to my wife, he said, I would love to come and clean your house for you <laughs> on a weekly basis. Wow. He loved cleaning. He had this thing about, and Debbie said, no, 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 we can't, you can't do that, Kenny. I don't know if it's because we thought our house was filthy or something, I'm not sure. But, uh, <laughs> but he, was, he was a strange, but a, a wacky guy, but he was so talented, you know, very talented indeed. Now, Tony, we've got one drink choice left in your dream gastro pub. It's got social distancing because it's your pub. It's got a, a seaside theme. The music is not too loud. It's enough to have a, a nice conversation with no one listening in. 
And there's only a pub quiz if you yourself are hosting it. <laughs> it sounds an awful evening, doesn't it? Sounds it sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to go there. It's got Budweiser and Peroni on draft. It's got Alta Italia, Pinot Grigio and Villa Maria Sauvignon Blanc in bottle. And there's also Smirnoff Vodka and Whiskey on the Spirits Rack. But one, what one extra drink are you going to add, Tony? It doesn't have to be alcoholic. It could be uh, a soft drink if you so choose. No. A nice glass of uh, Moet Chandon champagne. Mm. Oh, lovely. Classy. Very nice. Yeah. So I, I, I do like uh, a glass of champagne. I think it's a lovely drink. It's not an easy drink to drink, if you know what I mean, is it? There is, it's funny that, isn't it? Some drinks are a lot easier. They slip down a tree. But uh, Moe Chandon or, or any, any champagne. Well, not any champagne. But champagne is nice. It's also quite a difficult drink to drink in terms of the process of opening it and storing it because <laughs> it is. It has to yeah. be very cold, but you can't really keep it in the fridge because it's too big and you can't put a lid on it. So you have to have a way of keeping it cold and open and pouring it. So it is quite a fact. You need someone else. I think that's why champagne is so fancy because you need staff. <laughs> to pour it for you and to keep it for you. Yeah, I, I, I've never opened up a bottle of champagne and not had the whole lot of it. Never had to store it. <laughs> uh, no, I can. I mean, you don't get much, many glasses to a bottle of champagne or, or any drink for that matter, do you? I mean, it's amazing the way it goes. Or uh, is that just me? There's nothing worse than when you're at a wedding and you sort of get your glass filled and it's in one of those flutes and, and they pour it and it fizzes up and then they move on. And then the fizz just dies down yeah. to sort of show you a third glass of champagne. It's very annoying, that. Yeah, you're quite right. Well, Moe Chandon, a, a worthy celebratory choice for your dream pub. I have to ask, we've been talking about the great and good of music. We've spoken about you meeting Brian May and telling him your thoughts on Bohemian Rhapsody. Did you ever meet Freddie Mercury? Do you know, I lived next door to Freddie Mercury. Um, no. Yes, he had a, a very big house in a place called Logan Muse, and where I, I lived at the time. It's, it's, it's called Garden Lodge. No, but the, the actual muse he had was in Logan Muse, and he had a, a very small house there as well in this muse. Oh. So I had a muse house, and this is what happened. He had a big house called Garden Lodge, you're absolutely right, and that was on the main road. And he also had a muse house, and he could get to the muse house from his big house. I mean, I just had a little muse house, but I lived next door to uh, Freddie Mercury. And when he was very unwell, the press were outside for a whole year. And I used to go up on my roof and sunbathe up there, and I could see Freddie Mercury in his garden. But I never mm. actually met him. Never met oh him. Oh, my God. But the press were outside waiting for him to come out, and they didn't realize he had this muse house. And a car would come out to get him, and he would duck down in the back and drive out. And for a whole year, the press didn't realise it. They were absolutely appalling to him uh, in those final months. Mm, they were. The press. They were, but yes. that's what, an, yeah. what, is, what a sort of completely unique and strange insight you had to his, to his life. Yes, yeah. Because they were hanging out of trees. I remember one oh, yeah. Yeah. anecdote, someone who was a friend of his, I think it might even have been Dave Clark, who was who was actually with him when he died. He taught me to water ski, Dave Clark. What? what? Yeah. <laughs> what an incredible connection between you and Freddie Mercury is that the, the man that was at Freddie's bedside when he, when he sadly passed taught you to water ski. Yeah, and Dave Clark was very annoying because he had a great big Rolls Royce 
and he would park it in one of our parking spaces uh, <laughs> uh, we, in, in the mews, and it caused a lot of annoyance <laughs> to the re- residents there. It was a massive, great Rolls-Royce. But Dave Clark was... Uh, I, I, we had the same agent, Harold Davison, and I remember going to see Dave Clark. He had a place in uh, Mayfair, and we had to go to the BBC... And for some reason, I, I went round to his house and I said, hi, Dave. And it was raining. Uh, it was drizzling. And I said, let's get a cab. He said, oh, no, no, let's walk it, walk it. I said, well, we'll get drenched. It doesn't matter. And I related the story to Harold Davison. He said, um, I said, he, he didn't want to get a cab to the BBC. We had to walk in the rain. And he said, that's why he's a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't spend any money. On a cab. Well, anyway, I think Dave Clark or someone said that when when they would go to see Freddie, visit him when he was ill, the smell of cigarette smoke from the paparazzi that were hanging in the trees just would waft through the house, which is such a sort of unpleasant insight and piece of sort of almost... It just shows you how intrusive they were and how vile some of the things they wrote were. Yeah, they were horrible, yeah. Yeah, that's the way it was, but... Uh, I never met him, but I thought he was a terrific performer. I mean, wonderful performer. And the film, of course, about him was brilliant, I thought, as well. I don't know if you've seen that. I thought it was very good, yes. I, yeah, it was very good. I thought it? it was fantastic. Yeah. I saw Dave Clark recently in um, I Love Shack Attack, and I went down to Soho, and uh, uh, so the Soho Pizza Place down there, and um, Dave Clark was there, and we had a little chat as well. And he's, he's still around, you know? He doesn't perform anymore. Yeah, but, um, yeah, a nice guy, really nice guy. <laughs> But he parks his car in all the wrong places. You're barred. Well, uh, we have now fully stocked Tony Blackburn's dream pub. It has Budweiser, Peroni, Pinot Grigio, Sauvignon Blanc, vodka, whiskey, and Moet Chandon. Full bottle, Cliff. Full bottle. (laughs) But what one thing would you ban from your dream pub? What would you not allow? Um... Lots of, uh, too many people on a table being noisy. That's what I can't stand, you know. Um, and and you, you get you get people who are ch- chatting at the top of their voice. And I don't want to hear what anybody else is, is their conversation. You know, I can't stand it. So um, when you get people who are rowdy, I, I really hate that. So I would ban them. I would, I would immediately kick them out into the car park. <laughs> but um, I couldn't do it myself because they might fight back. But, and I'm a coward. But that's what I can't stand, uh, that with, with loud music. So I, I, I just like a little peaceful sort of thing. I like to be able to chat to you know, the people that I'm with. And I, you know, I'm not a loud person. And I'm, quite, um, you know, I'm not one of those people that go out to clubs and things like clubbing. I like being at home and uh, just enjoying the TV or radio, whatever it is. But when I do go out to a pub, I don't want to hear other people's conversations and I don't want to hear loud, loud laughter. So what I'm really saying is I don't like to hear people enjoying themselves. Aren't I awful? <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree, 100%. It's that very demonstrative thing, which I, for some reason I find kind of particularly British, but maybe that's just because I am British, but like that kind of thing where you're <laughs> laughing for other people to hear you and talking almost yes. as if like you, you want people to hear you is, is, yeah. is deeply annoying. In a way, sometimes you'd rather people were being so loud that you could go to the landlord and say, could you please tell them to be quiet? Or it was obvious, whereas there's something about just very loud conversation. You you can't turn to a table and go, could you have your conversation about 20% quieter, please? Whereas you could turn to a stag do and go, come on, guys, there's families here. It's not really the time and the place. I was thinking it's a shame that human beings haven't got volume controls on their foreheads. 
So you could actually just go and turn them down. Oh, yes. Or remote controls. Remote controls, that would be even better, wouldn't it? So you could sit from across the bar and just turn down a gang of lads. Oh, I am an old misery, aren't I? (laughs) You're not. You're absolutely joyful. Hurry up, please. It's time. It's been a delight having you here at the Moon Underwater, Tony. Thank you so much for your time and your candour and uh, everything you've spoken about. But we do need a name for this pub. So what is Tony Blackburn going to call his fantasy dream gastro pub? It's got a seaside theme. It's pretty much empty. It's quiet. There are no people talking too loud or being rowdy. And it's got all the drinks we've discussed, as well as Marvin Gaye on the jukebox at the perfect volume. What are we going to call this place? Quiet but fun. Oh, lovely. <laughs> well, it's not. Just, just over the, you know, quiet but fun. Oh, that's such a nice name. That's great. That's, they should call that, I mean, like, you know, we have the quiet carriage on trains. And that can be a bit kind of off-putting at times because it's a bit, you're aware that everyone's on edge because you have to be quiet. If they were called quiet but fun, I think people might be a bit more kind of relaxed. Quiet but fun carriage. And I'd quite like to, because it's my aim to take over the world, I'd quite like to have my picture above it or below it there with a, with a, with a um, I don't know, a, a nice light shining on oh. it. <laughs> so that people driving past can see it. That's great. <laughs> No, no, that's not great. Well, (laughs) Tony, thank you so much for joining us. It really has been a complete honour to speak to you. And we hope that you can take away quiet but fun under your arm so that it's there whenever you need a quiet place to have a a glass of wine or a few vodkas and enjoy your time with friends and loved ones. So we bid you farewell and we will always hold you in our hearts here at The Moon Underwater. Mm. John and Robin, thank you very much indeed. And um, I would uh, hope one day that I will go into my uh, pub called Quiet and Fun and, and, and see you both sitting at the table. And I'd like to join you. Oh, well, you would be welcome to sit with us. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. It's been great. Uh, before you leave, in order to play you out, what one song from What's Going On would you like to, to play on the jukebox? You know, the one that I got released as a single, it's uh, very deep and meaningful. It's called Save the Children. If that's a little bit too heavy going, then uh, just the What's Going On, Marvin Gaye, What's Going On. We don't mind heavy going here. And I think because you released it as a single, we shall send Tony on his way with Save the Children. Bye-bye. When I look at the world When I look at the world It fills me with sorrow It fills me with sorrow Oh, what an absolute honour, privilege and a treat it was to host the venerable right Sir Tony Blackburn here in the Moon Underwater. And we thank him for his time and his gastro pub, which he gets to uh, take away with him, perhaps on holiday one day, uh, so he can sit and have a quiet meal in peace with his lovely wife. But next week, it's all change, because into the moon underwater will step one of the godfathers of post-rock. It's Stuart Braithwaite, and uh, Robert and I are both very, very excited to speak to a musical hero of ours, Obviously, one of the founding members of the band Mogwai. Has any other podcast gone from Tony Blackburn to a member of Mogwai, do you think? I mean, 
that's quite uh, unusual. I can't think of one. It would be unusual. <laughs> uh, but that's the kind of place the moon underwater is. It attracts all comers. It does. And don't forget, uh, you can still get uh, 20% off at drydrinker.com with the code moonunderpod. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash moonunderpod. And live tickets still on sale for August and September, the live recordings of The Moon Underwater, and head over to uh, moonunderpod.com to uh, get links to those tickets. And we wish you all a very hearty pub week ahead. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 